they looked at us when we did the last measurement and they said, how is this blank possible? And Mm -hmm. Nathan wanted to trade that without the expletive. It's fun because reactions are usually one of wonderment saying, how do you do this? When people drive them and they come back with their comments about the feel, these are again, non-data points, but they're definitely experiential points. We have people that are now saying, even in a prototype base, I'll spend the extra money to put them on my car because I feel it's worth it. Welcome to Coffee Break, the official podcast of The Break Report. Here we dive deep into the world of brake technology, bringing you exclusive interviews with industry leaders and insights into the companies shaping our future. Let's get started. Welcome, I'm Brian Hagman, and my guest today is Gordon Heidecker, Chairman and CEO of Pure Forge. Thanks for joining me, Gordon. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for having me on. I guess to start off with, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background within the automotive industry and maybe how you ended up, you know, being involved with PureForge? Yeah, I I took a, how would you call it, a path less traveled. I I went through the automotive OEM and supplier industry and then into private equity. So I started out in my career working as an intern for Pontiac Motor Division. One of my favorite things I did back then is I worked on the Fiero in 1980. And that was a a fun experience, but got me really hooked in the auto industry. Grew up with my father worker for Pontiac. So that was, you know, where my passion came for for cars. But then uh, after I graduated, I started with American Motors. And then American Motors became Chrysler. Well, it was American Motors, Renault. Then it became Chrysler. Then it became Chrysler by itself for a while. Then it became Daimler Chrysler. Then it became Cerberus Chrysler. And, you know, after all that, uh, you know, we had a large identity crisis as to what Chrysler really stood for. So uh, when Cerberus was there, I decided in 2008 it was it was enough. I had been reporting to the board of management for eight years of my career at that point and seen pretty much everything. And I decided, decided to do my own thing. So I started... Um, company called uh, HPP. We did our own design development engineering of cars. And then I I got out of that and um, went into uh, running the management consulting uh, division at KPMG for automotive as as a vertical. Worked with Rivian to get them their funding. Then I went off into another area, which was uh, um, uh, machining uh, with a supplier in Germany. And then I came back into private equity and valuations. And then I got a phone call two guys, most notably my partner, Nathan Meckel, saying, hey, we want to hire you to run this company. And I said, well, that'd be great, but let's find out a little bit about it. I think the, the major thing about it was I had run R&D as a vertical in, in Daimler for five years when I was in Stuttgart and interfaced with them on all the intellectual property and all that. So when I started actually looking into it, I said, wow, you know, disruptive technology comes along very few times in your career. And when I really looked at it and I had, um, again, Hadrian Rory, who was from Chrysler, worked with me on Prowler, was pushing this technology and basically tell me what it was and what it wasn't. And uh, I was very impressed, albeit, you know, from a proof of concept perspective, you know, it didn't have all the stuff behind it that I would like to have seen as an engineer or as a vehicle line uh, executive at Chrysler, because there would have been a lot more questions, a lot more testing. But fundamentally, the proof in the pudding was there. And I said, hey, we can run with this. And, you know, I've seen on one hand the number of times it's been disruptive. So for me, I joined uh, November 18th of 2021 as uh, CEO. And uh, by um, March of the next year, I was uh, chairman and CEO. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, you've got, uh, you certainly have a very diverse automotive background for sure. You've been there, done that. That's awesome. So getting to your your career. So was there, um, 
What I guess, what was the most memorable role that you've held so far, other than this role? What's been the most memorable role you've held and, and why? Wow. Well, there's been a lot of really fun ones. I was involved in Viper back in the 80s when it was first announced and then became president CEO when uh, Service wanted to roll it out as a separate company and sell it through private equity. Uh, so I did that for a while. Um, one of the fun ones was working on Prowler. I was uh, you know, basically program manager and procurement manager for Prowler for from beginning to launch. Um, and that was a fundamental exercise in aluminum that took us across many, many different kinds of technologies. It was really kind of, if you were a car guy, that was one of the things to do. And then I was also involved in Viper at the same time. So I got to play in a really unique uh, you know, set of cars. I was given the opportunity at Chrysler to do some, some fun things. I think the one that stretched me the most was when the Germans came in and they sent me to Germany for five years as uh, chief corporate strategist and in charge of R&D and a lot of other kind of projects. And I got involved with the board over there doing some really unique stuff, uh, including things like Airbus and smart car and things like that. So I, I've, I've been extremely fortunate and on that entire path. I've always been designing, developing and implementing uh, alternative propulsion stuff and, and, and building race cars. So it's it's been a It's been kind of a a bilateral approach. I've always been known for being the car guy, right, which was fun. And I I think one of my favorite bosses was a guy named Bob Lutz. Uh, I worked for him on and off through my career, and he's so pragmatic about things. I also really enjoyed working for Wolfgang Bernhard because you never walked out of a meeting without a decision, whereas most everybody else never wanted to make one. Yeah, sure. Has there been any experiences or, you know, roles that you've been in that that you feel like have helped? prepared you the most to run a company, to be a CEO? I mean, is there anything significant or do you think it's maybe just a culmination of everything you've done? Well, I, I took, I managed my career. I didn't stay in a single silo. You know, I could have been in procurement or I could have been in quality or could have been in engineering. I, I kind of bounced around a lot and I took advantage when of opportunities when they were presented and I, I stretched myself. I mean, it was always the, how would you call it? The imposter feeling of why am I in strategy? Why, why am I doing this? But, you know, you get into it, you, you dive into that deep pool, you get you go underwater for a while, and then you come out and eventually you go, okay, I know what I'm doing, or at least I think I know what I'm doing. But no, it was, um, Nathan said this to me, uh, he says, and, and one of our board members uh, said this to me, he said, you had the unique travel of your career that puts you in the exact position where you're in today, where you have all the skills necessary to not only save the company and restructure it, but leverage it and drive it forward in the connections. And so, you know, not trying to toot my own horn, it's just been preparation in in advance of opportunity presenting itself. And, you know, by, I hate to say this, by the grace of God, it just all came together, right? I mean, it's it wasn't engineered that way. It just kind of happened. But, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for where I am and, and what I have and for the people that are working for us right now. We've got a great team. So let's talk about Pure Forge. You all are known for your atomic forge brake technology. Sounds impressive, but I have no idea what that really means. So can you tell me, can you explain to me, I guess as much as you can about at a high level, what like what is the technology, you know, what is the the product, that sort of thing? I, I love the atomic forge nomenclature, although I don't use it as much as everybody else does, in, including Nathan. You know, while we're all worried about, you know, brake rotors and hard parts and customers and all that, Nathan's worried about, you know, atoms and which way the, you know, the electrons spin and how they lay over each other. So I think that's where we get the atomic forge part is that, you know, he's worried about all the multiple 
multiple layers of this nanotechnology that we put on rotors and how those interface to provide us with this very unique uh, treatment. We don't like to call it a, a layer or a coating. We like to call it a treatment because it actually penetrates and becomes one with the cast iron surface. So, you know, from an atomic forge perspective, I view it, you know, for me, forging was always something you did with a lot of pressure, right? Whether it's metal or so forth. In this case, we're doing it with a lot of vacuum, but we're doing it in multiple layers in a vacuum chamber. And it's one of these things where we've we've created a lot of patents around it uh, to try and protect it. Um, we, I think we, at last count, we're at like 38 patents, eight pending, and another 30 disclosures behind that. So the, the juggernaut behind that has been very, very strong to protect it, create a moat, and create a barrier to entry. But more importantly, this atomic level of manipulation that Nathan's come up with is just brilliant. Right. And, you know, one of the things that was really fun is we, we, we do have a contract with Hyundai, which I think we announced at the break colloquium last year. And we just got another PO from them for next year for, for added work, which we'll be able to divulge later. But they took a look at the layers. She, <laughs> it was funny. She said, very interesting, but a lot of them are fuzzy. And Nathan said that's on purpose. So, so it's engineered at an atomic level. And I think that's probably the, the closest thing you can say. Yeah. And so, so what's the what's the advantages of the of the technology? Is it for durability? Is it for you know making sure it doesn't rust, like anti corrosion? Like what what is it all the above? Like what's the uh, the main factor? Well, there isn't any one main factor. That's what was very impressive to me. When I came on board, there was a couple of claims that they were using to try and 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 promote the technology. When I got into it, I realized, and we've we've just now listed our attribute list. We've got twelve attributes that we believe this technology contributes to. Then we put it into the different market segments. Said these are the different market segments, and then which attributes are important to which market. Fundamentally, the number one was durability or life life durability. How long does it last? And remember, this is a systemic approach. It's not just the rotor by itself. It's a rotor and pad system. And Paul Soloff said to us at one point, and he said, well, we think we, you invented a new way to actually stop a car because it's not the normal abrasive friction that's out there. It's, it, and Nathan has dubbed it adherent friction. And the, the factor that we're trying to say is what's the stiction of that adherence that allows us to create this. So again, we're, we're actually plowing a lot of new ground and we're creating actually a new vocabulary around it. And then we're putting metrics behind that. Longevity is one. Obviously, when you're not wearing the rotor, you also aren't creating cast iron dust that's going in the atmosphere, right? So that's just intuitive and that's measurable. And then when you go to another level, you're saying, all right, if you're not doing that and we create a good transfer layer, then what we're seeing is it's not rusting in the atmosphere. So like if you leave your vehicle out in the parking lot or you leave it in your driveway for a week or two with the uh, e-brake on, what's happening? Well, you're not seeing that corrosion that normally you know presents itself. And if there is anything, it usually wipes off extremely easy and doesn't pit or create any kind of uh, weird anomaly on the rotor braking surface. It also gives us a more consistent braking surface. And uh, you know our biggest, I guess, pursuit has been trying to get a very high level mu right out of the box. And that's what we've been able to do with our brake uh, pad partner. And we're now working with a second one. So there's been some great stuff. I've hired a recently uh, a gentleman who's working on just testing and development. And he's now putting together the protocol with Dan Berlicek and Paul Stoloff to 
figure out what testing holes we have, how do we get that data, and then how do we present that to an OEM, or how do we present that to a tier one, or how do we present that to a customer? Who's your specific target customer right now? I mean, are you looking at the OE side, aftermarket? Is it heavy duty? Is it fleets? Like, what do you see as the, the primary focus at the moment? Well, I'll start with the heavy duty because we're not there yet, right? I mean, we're not class six, seven, or eight. But we have solutions for that that we would need to put R&D dollars uh, towards. In that vein, my goal is to get to market, get to profitability, and get to break even as fast as possible. And that's what we owe our, our stockholders. So that's what we're doing. Once I have that cash flow and I want to apply a, you know, a fairly high level of that to R&D, I will do that. And we'll continue to go down that road. Unless we get a partner who wants to go down that road and help fund it with us in a JV or whatever. You know, Obviously, technology like this, in almost every case, it's really hard to bootstrap it from the floor up. You need to find partners that are willing to you know, throw in with you. And, you know, so we're open to that discussion and we've, we've got several that are happening that I can't divulge. Sure. So now when you start to look at OEM, OEM is, you know, coming from the OEM and being a vehicle line executive for several vehicles at Chrysler or Daimler, testing development, regardless of what you are handed as far as testing proof, you will always put it on a car, you'll run it through that, you'll, you have to do the FMVSS testing to prove it on that vehicle before you ever launch it and probably would only be an option because of our, our price point at this point, right? We're not scaled yeah. to that level. So really where the market pushes me is into fleet because we have a high TCO, right? High TCO uh, payback. Uh, we've been on, I can't mention the name of the fleet, but one of the largest fleets in the world for a year now with zero wear on the rotor. And we have basically projected this at least seven to eight, maybe nine year life. And in that we've provided a lot of payback, but the biggest one we haven't been able to calculate is, is uptime, right? Then where I think it really starts to play well is in the performance and, and towing market where you have a payback as well. So um, those, are the, those are the areas that we're focusing. And I think our first focus will be in the performance and high, say, high net worth car uh, application. Then we'll go to fleet at the same time. And, you know, landing those two will get us easily to, I think, what we have projected for 24 is our break even year or better. Gotcha. What about the le the electric vehicle side of things? Obviously, with the corrosiveness, the you know durability, you know, is that is that a potential target, or is it still maybe more the price point, or just not quite there yet on the the EV side? Well, I, I have to laugh again. You know, these tests that were set up by SE are based on current braking technology and information that have been for years. Our problem is that our brake effectiveness starts once we establish an efficient transfer layer. So we have to get to a certain point before all those tests, then we blow those tests out of the water. If we just do the test as is, we may not effectively get a transfer layer. So back to your comment about corrosion. If I, if I hand an OEM just a treated rotor and say, go have fun with it, I don't give them a pad, or I give them even a pad, and they run the normal test, they're not going to get to see the advantages we have. So there are still protocols that we need to make sure it's training, right? And and I've worked with SAE before in test protocols. If we provide a unique product or product uh, that, that is in the marketplace, you have to then test differently to show those attributes than traditional. And so that we, that's a little bit of a hill to climb, I think, on the OEM side. Got it. So since your time at PureForge, I guess, how has the company evolved? And I guess, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've had? Well, I, th I think the biggest surprise for me was coming in and, and understanding that 
we needed to put in governance, protocols, financial controls. I mean, a lot of the, the basic building block stuff was not there. In June, you may have seen the announcement we merged with an engineering company that gave us fully end-to-end scanning, uh, fabrication, machining, fabrication testing capability that PureForge would have had to go out and hire out. And, you know, when you do that, you always have a, I would call it an IP bridge leak or, or, or potential IP loss because you start starting to now deal with other companies that don't have your best interest at heart in their customers or their suppliers. And so you have to be very careful in how to manage those relationships. If we brought it all in-house vertically, then we were able to strategically do whatever we want. And if we had an IP issue, we could actually implement something well before we filed for a patent. And we've done that a couple of times already, which, you know, once I get some patents, I can show you what we did. It's kind of actually innovative. But we, we came up with these ideas. I, I Last year, for instance, we were driving to PRI, three of us, my, my VP of production, my, myself and our lead engineer. And we said, well, what if you did this? And then, you know, we're driving for four hours so that what if turned into how do you do it and what, what equipment do you use and, and so forth. And by the time we got to Indianapolis, we had another patent we had to file, right? But when we came back from PRI, we started actually implementing that idea on a machine, on a three-axis machine, and had it actually functioning before we put the disclosure into the patent office. You couldn't do that if you didn't have integral engineering and verticalized uh, capability. Yeah. So walk me through the operation, just so I just so I can kind of understand your all's process. Is it do you receive the rotor from like the disc from a foundry, and then you all do some machining, or is it already machined, and then you all treat it in house? How does that work? What or what can you what can you talk about that? I can tell you where we are today, and and maybe uh, indicate where we're going to. Right uh, today, we'll take. Pretty much, we we have, we have to take a rotor that has no paint application or no anti-corrosive app. We just need a raw rotor that's machined, right? And that's where we start. We have mm-hmm. a general agreement with Wapaka to work on rotors and rotor technology. Um, I think there was an announcement that uh, uh, we, we have some decent uh, working relationships with, with a foundry in the United States. We're very big about American-made. That doesn't mean we can't buy rotors from wherever they come from and, and turn them into our product, right? So for me, it's a cast iron product that has a certain machining face. If there's something we need to do in-house to, to true that up, we'll do that prior to processing. Um, again, that's part of the proprietary process of what we do, and particularly the surface treatment and how we put that on as part of that process that is, that's, that's internal. Most importantly, it's, it's working with our pad manufacturer to make sure that all those interfaces, all those surfaces work together properly. And that's really what we've been kind of finessing as we go through to make sure that in production. So for us, yeah, we have partnerships in supply on rotors and pads, and we'll continue to develop those over time. Longer term, will we put in machining centers and so forth to do our own thing? Possibly. It's my favorite finance term, which it's a math problem. Gotcha. So what's been the feedback so far from either current customers or potential customers? Is there anything that kind of stands out as far as maybe the feedback and is there any like actions been able to, you know, to, to take on that? Nathan loves this one. He actually wanted to trademark it, but I didn't want to trademark, trademark an expletive. Uh, we were on test now for a year with his fleet and they looked at us when we did the last measurement and they said, how is this blank possible? Right. And mm-hmm. Nathan wanted to trade that without the expletive. And I said, well, you know, um, that's why we have a little card we hand out of PRI that says, you know, this is freaking impossible or whatever it is. It's fun because reactions are usually one of, uh, one of wonderment saying, how do you do this, right? When people drive them 
and they come back with their comments about the feel uh, or so forth. These are these are again non data points, but they're definitely experiential points. And we have people that are now saying, you know, I'll spend the extra money, even in a prototype base, I'll spend the extra money to put them on my car because I feel it's worth it. And typically, mm-hmm. the customers we're getting are ones that have bought a new car; they're on their first brake job, right? Those are the ones that want to buy this and never worry about a brake job again, uh, as as long as they own the car, or even when they transfer it to a kids, for instance. We, I've been driving on them. Uh, all of our employees are driving on them. We're going to make sure everybody has that experience continually. And, you know, it's it's really funny because we've been trying to uh, spend more time on the track. So we're, we have a, a relationship with M1 Concord that we uh, mentioned. Uh, we signed a contract and we're putting our uh, rotors and pads on their race cars uh, for on-track experience. We did that last year. We had a great great result that uh, they saw not only as a cost savings in operations, but also as an advantage with no degradation and on-track performance. So uh, it's been very interesting as we've gone gone through it, but um, I, I think the experience and the feedback has all been positive and, and I haven't really heard anything negative, and that's in the last two years. Yeah. So what, what markets are you in right now? Are you focusing 100% in North America at the moment? Are you uh, over in Europe, other places? Where are you right now? Well, it's interesting you bring up Europe because in Europe the the you know the attribute that probably the most uh, perplexing is is brake dust right so the EU seven uh, brake dust regulations I think are still being formulated I think they're still being um, they're still deciding where they're going to go with that we we did run an EU seven uh, brake dust test over uh, with Link and we came back that our rotor did not uh, produce any any rust so or any uh, dust uh, one of the things that I, I also wanted you know I told our guys I said when you're doing a test in that kind of an environment, you're never going to get that rust wipe-off phase, which also contributes to wear and further dust in the environment. So we we want to work with you know, either Link or somebody to develop a test that kind of shows real world experience of a rotor going through a normal degradation process and then ours in the same environment and then repeat that. Now, that's a test we have to create. But really, fundamentally, we're focusing on U.S. applications now, U.S. fleets and U.S. performance. Um, if it tends to migrate to Europe, great. Um, but there's enough work to be done right now with our brand and building our brand in the United States that I think our focus is going to be laser tight and trying to get into those markets uh, short term. Because, again, our pricing model is, is, is a bit more than most people would want to spend on a brake job. Got it. So, you know, I can see this, it seems like this application can be used on other industries, other components, even outside automotive. <laughs> it sounds like obviously you guys are, as you just mentioned, focused, but is, is are you guys looking down the road like five, 10 years from now? Do you see PureForge being, you know, the technology being used on other applications within automotive or maybe even outside automotive? Where do you guys stand on that? I will say merely one thing, which is Yes without tipping my hat too far. One, one of the syndromes we have as, as technologists and as car enthusiasts is what I call the squirrel syndrome, right? And so if, if, if you know, we're focused on one thing and then we see a squirrel, we go, well, squirrel, and we go off in that direction, I got to pull the whole team back, right? And get them back into, into the boat and say, no, 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 guys, that's for the future. We have a listing of you know, again, I, I won't go into details. We have a listing of applications and process applications that we would like to explore once we have, you know, put this on the market and we have cash flow. I'm trying to do the responsible thing for our investors and our stockholders by by focusing in on getting to a payback and, and driving value. 
Does it have other applications? Yes. Is it something we like to pursue? Yes. Is the time right now? No. And so, you know, again, being pragmatic as possible, I'd love to go off and, and play research lab with this stuff um, because as a engineer and as a car guy, yeah, there's there's a lot of ideas that come to mind. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know if you met uh, Sean Visser, who's our, our chief basically vice president of production. You know, when I introduced this to him, when I first became CEO, he went off on a tangent. I couldn't pull him back for two days. <laughs> gotcha. No, that's great. So I guess, so before we wrap up, I want to talk, kind of get into some leadership topics while I have you here. So, you know, what do you, what do you do as a CEO running a company like this? You know, you've been in the automotive, like, what do you do to stay motivated or stay positive when things get rough or get tough? Cause you know, obviously, you know, when phone calls don't go right, you know, maybe customers or projects don't work the way they're supposed to, timelines are missed. Like, what do you do? Is there anything you do that, that any magic bull that you, that you, I guess, look to, to, to help stay motivated? Well, you know, again, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been through 45 years. I hate to say that because I'm feeling really old now of, of ups and downs, failures. I've done a lot of technology implementation programs over the years and, and you're, Hey, look, when you're doing stuff, you're bound to have failures, you're bound to, but that's how you learn. That's how you overcome. Fortunately for me, I had that experience so I can keep the team motivated and say, okay, what do we learn from this? How do we, how do we, you know, go around this? How do we, what are our options? But more importantly, I think it's the cultural thing that you try to do when you keep everybody cohesive. So one of the things I can say in our team is we brought in a lot of people that are very like-minded. Almost everybody in our team is, is a car guy or gal. And, and I'll, I'll say one thing. My admin surprised me. She's an SCCA registrar and she does autocross on weekends and she's just a downright track, you know, liver. She loves to, to race her Mustang. And so we have this cohesive automotive passion. And I think because of that, people know things don't always go right and that we have to overcome. And then the other mantra I have is, uh, you know, if you really want to motivate the team, tell them it can't be done. And then they're going to figure out how to do it. Sure. Yeah. From a, from a leadership style perspective, do you find yourself emulating anyone that's, you know, made an impact on you? Is there anyone you think of, or do you think maybe your leadership style has just been just really more just going through the ranks and kind of like you said, some, you learn as you go? Well, it, you learn from certain individuals that are, that are mentors, um, people that you look up to in the industry. And I've had, fortunately, I've had some really, really good ones that have uh, kept me on the straight and narrow, have told me, you know, morally, ethically, and, and, and I think a part of it's having, a, a, again, I don't want to be preachy here, but having a good faith-based knowledge of, of who you are and where you fit in the universe, right? I mean, understanding how that works. Again, I'm not trying to preach to anybody, but building upon that, I had uh, a boss when just before my kids were born, his name was Steve Zimmer, and he told me what it was to be, say, moral and ethical. His comment to me was, most important was, you got to get up every morning and like the person you see in the mirror. And, and respect that person. And so don't do anything that makes you not respect who you are, number one. Number two, be pragmatic. Uh, Bob Lutz was always uh, all about make a decision and move. If you got, you know, your normal graph and you're trying to get a trajectory, if you don't make a decision, it either stays flat line or it goes negative. And if you make a decision, you might go up and maybe the wrong decision you can course correct. So that was good. Wolfgang Bernhardt was a great uh, leader in the sense that he was, he'd make a decision out of every meeting. Now, if he made the wrong decision, he didn't like to be corrected, but you could correct him later. Right. You could talk to him in private. And, and, he, and then he was, again, very pragmatic about it. And then there was a, another gentleman who I think was by by far the nicest guys 
that that I think I've ever worked for and really competent and really cared about the people. I mean, people would walk through a wall of fire for him. And that was a guy named Tom Gale. Tom Gale was uh, a VP of design at Chrysler. I worked for him on Prowler for the, the 90 day, which turned into a 160 day study. He was just a wonderful individual to work with, held himself in the highest moral and standard. And you look at him, you say, I want to be that guy. Right. So, you know, it's kind of a mix of all those guys. And then, of course, uh, you know, I couldn't leave out my dad who worked at Pontiac, worked for John DeLorean in the 50s and 60s and was a, you know, a patent maker and an innovator back in the days of the 60s of racing cars. So, you know, you, you, you kind of build on all that and you pull it all together and you say, all right, how do I emulate and lead? But more importantly, we always said this at Chrysler, lead and, and, and lead by example, right? You know, what, what applies mm-hmm. to me when we're building this company up, if, you know, the bathroom's got to be cleaned or you got to do something, everybody does what it is. Sweep the floor, take the garbage out, whatever it is. Everybody does that. Yeah, well said. That's great. Well, Gordon, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate your time today and I definitely look forward to, to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on and uh, let's follow up uh, again, you know, through the year and uh, we'll keep informed. And hey, if, uh, if you make it to PRI and we can talk a little bit, but I think we'll have a lot more to talk about at PRI. Great. You know, absolutely. We'll do for sure. Thanks, Brian. This is Brian Hagman, host of Coffee Break. I want to give a big thank you to today's guest and to all of you for tuning in. Until next time, Let's keep breaking stuff.